on the last night of his life, Jesus prayed a prayer that stands as a citadel for all Christians. He said, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Jesus prayed those words in John 17. They're recorded. How precious these words are. Jesus, knowing the end is near, prays one final time for his followers and for us. Striking, isn't it, that he prayed not for their success, not their safety. He didn't pray for their happiness either. He didn't mention money. He didn't mention position. He didn't mention popularity or possessions. He says nothing of high self-esteem. Jesus prayed that as he was in the world, so we might be as well. He prayed for their unity. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to this concept for which Jesus poured out his heart. Listen to his words, which are found in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Paul knew that the people of, in the world would be one to Christ as we in the church become one in Christ. According to Jesus, unity among the saved fosters belief among the lost. Let me say that again. Unity amongst the saved fosters belief amongst the lost. Furthermore, the apostle knew that we become the real church when we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto each other. Not to criticize each other, but to serve one another. Not to cut each other down, but to cheer each other on. Not to niggle, but to nudge. Why? So that the world may know, so that the world may believe that Christianity is truly of God. Amen? That's our stated mission, by the way, to introduce people to Jesus Christ and to help them to become his committed followers. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does that imply for you and for me? Well, it means three things must be operational in your life. You and I must be actively engaged in at least three major pursuits in life. We must be in hot pursuit of, number one, personal intimacy with God. If you want to break down Romans chapter 12, that would be found in verses 1 and 2. Personal intimacy with God. 
The second pursuit is total community with other believers. That could be found in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 16. And the third pursuit is spiritual influence with those outside the faith. And you can find that in verses 17 to 21, right here in Romans chapter 12. These are the three pursuits that we preach from this church. Personal intimacy with God, total community with those of the faith, and spiritual influence with those outside the faith. Today, we're concerning ourselves with the second of those pursuits, total community with other believers. Now, I've often said that God is the most unified being in the universe. You believe that? And if that is so, then shouldn't his people be as well? If our Christianity is going to be credible in the world's eyes, it's going to happen through our own personal authenticity. That's in verse 9. We looked at that two weeks ago. And as we see here in verses 10 through 13, through the way we act in community with each other is also going to show our personal authenticity in Christ. A few years after his letter to the Romans, Paul wrote very similar words to the church in Philippi. In Philippians chapter 1, in verse 27, and then on into chapter 2, the first two verses, we read these words of Paul. Only one thing concerns me, he says, be sure that you live in a way that brings honor to the good news of Christ. Then whether I come and visit you or I am away from you, I will hear that you're standing strong with one purpose, that you work together as one for the faith of the good news. Does your life in Christ give you strength, he says? Does his love comfort you? Do we share together in spirit? Do you have mercy and kindness? If so, make me very happy by having the same thoughts, sharing the same love, and having one mind and purpose together. I believe that the practical way of bringing all those words to life and thereby presenting a Christian faith to the world that is not only believable but also enviable is right here in in Romans chapter 12, verses 10 to 13. And he's saying here that authentic Christianity will be demonstrated by our relational activity toward others in the family of God. Christianity is not a system of doctrine but a new creature, said John Newton, a new creature. If you're going to present Christianity as credible in the eyes of a non-believing world, the eyes of your non-believing neighbor, there has to be some practical proof of it. Amen? It's going to be seen in how you relate to those around you, in how you personally act in any given situation, and in how you respond to people's needs. We ought to adopt this mindset of a man named Robert C. Chapman who stated the goal of his life in these words. He says, seeing that so many preach Christ and so few live Christ, I will aim to live him. It's a good word. The question is, will you and I live him? What does it look like, practically speaking, to live Christ? What does that look like? Well, I think we can find the answer right here in Romans chapter 12, verses 10 to 13. But today, we're only going to look at verse 10. Next week, we're going to look at 11 through 13. 
right? And the first thing is this. Practical Christian activity is intensely relational. Intensely relational. Verse 10, chapter 12. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That's relational, isn't it? Statistics show that approximately 95% of the people of any given community never walk into a church. Now, that means that if our activities revolve solely inside the church, we're reaching 5% of the people in the community. Christianity does not become real to the world outside by what goes on inside these four walls. Being real to the world around us means building relationships with people around us. Amen? It means building and maintaining these relationships outside our own local body, not only with unbelievers, but also with other believers of different denominations even. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And how about other ethnic backgrounds even? It means loving and serving each other the way that Christ did, outside these walls as well as inside them. How many of us want to be around each other outside of here? Are we with each other outside of here? The fellowship in here is warm and friendly, but how do we act with each other out there? That's an important thing to think about. Do the people of Fayette, this community, see us when we're together outside of here and remark, oh, wow, those people from the church, they really have fun together. They really love one another. They're always helping each other out, never speaking bad about each other. That is what makes the faith credible to them. People want to be a part of that kind of community, don't they? Why? Because number one, it's characterized by brotherly love. That's what Paul says here in verse 10, the first part of the verse. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And the words here refer to a natural affection toward one another as parents and children have for each other. It's not a love of desire. He's not talking about a fuzzy love. This is the natural affection because of family ties. Love each other, Paul says, like brothers and sisters. That's how the NCV translates it. It refers to this bond that ties us together. It's it's the unhypocritical love that Christians have for one another. In fact, the literal meaning here is doubly emphasized in the original language. In fact, it could be translated literally like this. Be lovingly loving with one another in loving love. You think he's trying to make his point? Who talks like that? The Apostle Paul when he's trying to make a point. Paul is emphasizing a family type of love. Now, we're connected to each other by blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? When a person places their faith in Jesus, they become part of one family. It doesn't matter what they look like, what they dress like, if they have green hair, blue hair, blonde hair, spiked hair, or no hair. 
It doesn't matter if they even speak the same language, does it? Because of our common spiritual bond in Christ, we are family. Yes? And guess what? You don't get to choose your family, do you? Just as we had no choice in choosing our natural siblings, we have no choice in choosing our spiritual siblings. Amen? And brothers and sisters must love one another. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, and, and, and 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God. Okay? Foundational truth, right? And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. If someone says, I love God, but hates his Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar, John says. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we have not seen? And God himself has commanded that we must love not only him, but our Christian brothers and sisters too. Heaven knows, and Scripture unabashedly records, how siblings do not always love each other, right? The first example of violent sibling rivalry occurs only four chapters into Genesis. There was no, certainly no love lost between Cain and Abel, was there? As Mark Buchanan reveals... Brotherly kindness is not as natural as it first appears. Brothers, for one, aren't always kind, not to each other, not to others. Being siblings is just as likely to generate rivalry and envy and suspicion and disdain as it is goodwill and oneness. A woman once confessed to me that her intense dislike for a woman in our church had nothing at all to do with the woman herself. She said, she reminds me of my sister. <laughs> my sister always did everything better than me. Oh, you're so pretty, everyone told her. You're so thin. You're so talented. You're so funny. And they never said that to me. So I hated her, and I hate everyone who reminds me of her. But it's in the Scripture, too. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me is how one man interrupts Jesus and prompts from him a famous parable in Luke chapter 12. Jesus' initial retort, man, who appointed me judge or arbiter over you? Jesus is in the reconciling business, not in the dividing one. Amen. He wants to join things together, not break them asunder. It turns out we need as much grace and sometimes more to love our brother as we do to love our neighbor or a stranger or even our enemy. Sometimes our brother is our enemy. I can think of many people I know who have not spoken to a sibling in more than 10 years and in some cases many decades. Here's the question that God asks very early on in Genesis, where is your brother, right? 
Where is your brother? And he's asking us that today. He might be closer than you think. Love the one whom Jesus loves, the one he's chosen, the one in whom he is at work to make holy. Cast out your spirit of sibling rivalry by the spirit that has made you a son or, or daughter of Abba. Do not miss the grace of God and so become like Cain, cursed and estranged, exiled from the very place he sought by killing his brother to have everything to himself. A woman by the name of Martha Mason once said that the richest man in the world is not the one who still has his first dollar that he ever earned. It's the man who still has his first friend. Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. You know, one of the greatest things I've ever seen is a family that not only loves and respects one another, but they are best friends as well. They like spending time together. They cherish the relationship. Max Dupree was talking to his father one day when his father was in his mid-90s. His father had been a wildly successful CEO for a Fortune 500 company called Herman Miller half a century ago. They were so innovative that they, uh, in design that one of their chairs sits today in the Smithsonian Institute. They created an employee profit-sharing plan decades before its time. And he had been deeply involved in church and community life and, and lived wisely and well, but he had lived so long that his wife, his longtime friends, and everybody he knew, basically, all passed away. And Max asked him how he was doing and his dad was deeply sad. He said, I've lived too long, Max. I've outlived everybody I knew. It's a hard thing to outlive all your peers. I don't have any friends left. They've all died. Don't you have anybody? No. Well, I suppose there is one. And then he told Max about his one friend, there was in his neighborhood an eight-year-old boy who lived nearby. The boy had no father, no real male role model in his life. And his path home from school took him past this old man's house. And a relationship started when one day they nodded to each other as the boy passed by. The nods turned into hellos, and the hellos turned into conversations. And after a while, the boy got in the habit of stopping by two or three times on his way home. What do you do when he comes by, asked Max, intrigued by the picture of his 96-year-old ex-CEO father hosting a second grader. Well, every day his dad said he would fix a glass of milk and plate of cookies just in case the day, that day his little friend would stop by. And on those days when he did, Max's dad would bring the snack outside. They'd sit down and eat together on the stoop so that everybody in the neighborhood could see and no one would get suspicious about what they were doing. Then the loneliness of a 96-year-old widowed world-class CEO and the loneliness of an 8-year-old fatherless boy connected, and it all melted away. You see, we cannot make friendship and love happen. They come, when they come to us at all, as gifts. 
But we can make space for them. Max says, we can work at reestablishing family fun and meaningful rituals. We can make space for relationships and watch God make them work. We could turn off the TV, make space. We could travel in cars with conversations instead of iPods and headphones. We can figure out how much physical and emotional energy we need to give attention to those we love and then give our leftovers to work instead of the other way around. We can read together. We can begin by simply making the decision that we will give relationships top priority in our life. So often today, natural affection for each other has been twisted and distorted by our sinfulness and by Satan himself, so much so that the church is sometimes uncomfortable showing it. We need to show it. The message says it this way about this verse. Be good friends who love deeply. Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And he uses this word for brotherly love. You probably already know what it is. It's the word Philadelphia in the original language. He could have used a couple of other words for love here. He could have used a Greek word or relationships. He could have used a Greek word which describes goodwill, that gives rise to kind deeds. It's a whole different word, Christostes. Or he could have used a different word that describes love toward mankind, that expresses itself in acts of selfless generosity. And you know this word too, philanthropia. Both are great words, but Paul chose Philadelphia, brotherly love. The other two words don't have to be personal, by the way. They can be done at a distance. We can remain personally detached. In fact, philanthropy is usually anonymous, right? A rich guy in his mansion writes a check to orphans in Africa so that that child can get new clothes. There's no connection there. It is anonymous. That's philanthropy. Philanthropy doesn't have to be personal. Philadelphia, however, does. Again, as Mark Buchanan writes, brotherly kindness or brotherly love is me caring for you and you for me, up close, face-to-face, hands-on. Unless I am willing to bear with you and you with me putting, putting up with each other in all our oddness and weirdness and prickliness, then all we have is philanthropy. That's a nice enough thing, but it is a very sad substitute for Philadelphia. Philadelphia asks, who is my brother? Where is my brother? And it insists, I am my brother's keeper. Philadelphia gets involved. It comes near. It's interesting that Paul uses two different words for love in two verses here in this text. In verse 9, as we saw two weeks ago, he uses the word agape. In verse 10, he uses the word Philadelphia. And at times, preachers and commentators draw sharp distinctions between the two, arguing that agape is God's kind of love, unprovoked and unconditionally given, while 
phileo or Philadelphia is more of a friendly family affection that depends on a mutual relationship. But sometimes the distinction is way overdone. I don't think that Paul here is concerned with hair-splitting semantics, ranking one above the other in priority. I think Paul is showing that we need both in our lives and in our relationships, amen? Peter did much the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. This is what that, chap, that text says. It says, Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, here it is, Philadelphia, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, here's the other one, agape, love. Side by side, both of those things. Peter says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is as blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. See, we don't prefer one over the other necessarily, but we make the effort to acquire, to cultivate, and to exhibit both kinds of love. Otherwise, as someone has said, the Christian life is incomplete. And the reason, one author again points out, is simply this. Philadelphia is to love what God loves. Agape is to love as God loves. Okay? And we need to be engaged in both of those things. Or, as I think the Apostle Paul is saying, we are to love whom God loves in the way God loves them. Who does God love? You find that out, and that's your brother and your sister. And oh, by the way, you are his keeper. If I love the Father, I will also love what he loves, and more than anything, that's his children. Amen? That's what John says. It's critical that we grasp this truth. It's not as simple as you think. If my father is God and your father is God, then we are children of the same father. And that makes us kin. And by the way, that pertains not only to people who are easy to love, but to those who require extra grace as well. And you know those people. Because not all, not all God's children are lovable. While many are fun, exciting, and warm and friendly, others of them are obnoxious, annoying, boring, and very prickly. They're EGRs, extra grace required type people. You've heard me talk about that before, right? And you and I are probably one of them to somebody. I read again this week that among pagans, Philadelphia was another way of saying that blood is thicker than water. It was shorthand for family sticks together always. Fact is, the New Testament radically enhances that concept as it relates to Christians. Although we do not share the same bloodline biologically, as Christians, we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. 
and we are truly children of the same Father spiritually. And that expresses itself in devotion to one another. As family, we stick together. Always. Love serves. Love honors. Love is practical. It's practical devotion in that it literally causes me to prefer another over myself. This combination of agape and Philadelphia love divides those who have life from those who take life. John, the the disciple whom Jesus loved, put it very bluntly in 1 John 3, verses 14 and 15. If we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to eternal life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another Christian is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. Those are John's words. This is serious, serious stuff, isn't it? Stuff I have to learn And I have to practice a whole lot more in my life. That's what characterizes true Christian community. It's characterized by brotherly love, number one. And number two, it's characterized by humility. Look again at Romans 12 and verse 10, the second part of the verse. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That's humility. How much do we honor others when we backbite and gossip and complain about every little thing that a person does? How does that honor them? The word preferring here literally means to go before as a guide, as a trailblazer, a leader. Paul says we ought to be, what we ought to be doing is leading the way in showing honor to one another, as Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 states. You know that verse, right? When you do things, do not let selfishness or pride be your guide, Paul writes. Instead, be humble and give more honor to others than to yourselves. Do not be interested only in your own life, but be interested in the lives of others. But you know, that's not going to happen in isolation. It requires being in community Psychologist Philip Zimbardo of Stanford writes these words. He says, I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There is no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than the isolation of you from me and us from them. The devil's strategy for our times is to trivialize human existence by isolating us from one another while creating the delusion that the reasons are time pressures, work demands, and economic uncertainties by fostering narcissism and the fierce competition to be number one. And that's where we are in society, isn't it? Of course, we all say that relationships are more important than money, but we constantly cheat relationships for the sake of work or money. There are no TV shows called Who Wants to Be a Great Friend, right? It's who wants to be a millionaire. You can phone a friend. But we have come to call reality shows. What are reality shows? They're programs that deliberately pit one person against another. Reality means having someone excluded or fired or voted off the show. 
Is that reality? It's not what Paul's talking about. If we're going to live Christianity before the world wisely, then there are some relational realities that we need to practice, Paul says. Paul puts it right here in Romans 12. We need to give relationships top priority under Christ, of course. These verses spell out the kind of activity that builds relationships. These are the kind of relationships that expose Christians as authentic in a world of counterfeits. Practical Christian activity, folks, is intensely relational. If you don't believe me, take your Bibles home and study the one another's of the New Testament. There are over 30 of them, and by far the most repetitive one is love one another. Over and over and over again. It's all there. So, why is it that it usually takes a crisis of some sort to make us realize the immense importance of our relationships? Why is it that way? You all know it's true, don't you? What's the first thing you do after a funeral? Oh, I got to start visiting with so-and-so more. I got to start working less and enjoying life more. Why? Because life is short. You hear that all the time. Life is short. Life is short. Life is short. Till Monday morning, we forget all about the fact that life is short. You see, I've spent a lot of time in places where relational devotion and love take on a whole transformed character during times of crisis. As unwelcome and as unbidden as funeral homes and hospital waiting rooms are to most of us, they also have been powerful, powerful reminders to me of how much of this life is temporary and how crucial the permanence of love is as a binding force in our relationships. A man named Wes Seliger once wrote words that not only bring this truth to bear, but in essence, echo the wisdom of the Apostle Paul in this Romans 12 text. He says, I have spent long hours in the intensive care waiting room watching with anguished people, listening to urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How do you live without your companion of 30 years? The intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world, isn't it? And the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is rude. The distinctions of race and class melt away. The garbage man loves his wife as much as the university professor loves his. And everyone understands this. Each person pulls for everyone else. In the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. He says, vanity and pretense vanish. The universe is focused on the doctor's next report. If only it will show improvement. Everyone knows that loving someone else is what life is all about. Could we learn to love like that if we realize that every day of life is a day in the waiting room? Because it is. It is. Every day is. We're waiting. 
eagerly waiting and groaning within ourselves for our adoptions as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies, amen? But in the meantime, we have these precious relationships God has blessed us with, all of us. First, our relationship with him and then with each other in community. So my question as I leave you this morning is this, what are you doing with those relationships? How are you treating them? 